0: Lord, we do rejoice in your goodness. You are kind and you are loving. You are mighty and you are strong. You are our ever-present help in time of trouble, in time of need. And oh Lord, how dependent we are on you. Lord, I pray that as we gather together this morning, under your word, that we might do just that, place our hearts under your word that we might be changed by it, by your Holy Spirit. May we, um, in your kindness, to show us our sin, our sin of pride, and how it rears its ugly head in our lives. None of us is exempt, and yet, Lord, we have the hope of the gospel. We have the hope of your kindness to us, and, and you have won the battle over our sin. You, you are. we are victorious in you. Lord, I thank you for um, the time that we have together this morning. May it glorify your name. Lord, may your Holy Spirit do his work in each of our hearts as we look to you for all things. Increase our affection for you as we learn of you and the kindnesses that you show to us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So you're going to turn your notebook over as you do each week. And we're going to look at the disciplines. And what is the purpose of Wellspring? It is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And our first discipline is the heart. She prayerfully shepherds her heart. Um, The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. It often reminds me of Ezra. In Ezra 7.10, it said, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and teach his statutes and rules. I love Ezra in the example that he set his heart. He resolved. He determined to study the word of God. And we must do that setting of our hearts as well. We're continually reminded in the gospel of who we once were. We were wicked. We were in opposition to God. We were lost. We were without hope. We were rebellious. But God gave the righteous one to die on our behalf for our sin. And he was raised again to life, overcoming sin and death. And the gospel is a gift not only for salvation but also to enable us to deal with the ongoing activity of sin in our lives. It's the enabling grace we have been given, and what a gift that is. So we must be about shepherding our hearts, about counseling, about leading, about guarding our heart to the Word of God, to meet with Him there, that He might do His mighty work in our hearts. And it takes discipline, and it takes resolve. As we grow in our love for God, we're going to long for that time more and more. But if you notice that the more you feed your heart with God's word, the more you desire it. And if you neglect that time, maybe it's possible to neglect it even more. So we pray and we press on and we pray that for God's help. For it's in him that we live and move and have our being. And discipline too. the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart for God, fixed on God and his word. Like Ezra, we want to practice those things which the word calls us to. As women, we want the law of God to always be on our hearts and on our lips. And as we feed upon his word, we can feed those in our home with his word. We'll be purposeful to minister to the needs of our household relationships. Our home is the first place where the gospel is going to be displayed. We practice here, and we show what the gospel has accomplished us in us here, most first and foremost. And three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Ezra, again, first set his heart to study the scripture, then to practice it. And here, you'll see in this passage, discipline three, the ministry. Ezra taught the scriptures, and teaching isn't near, um, merely standing at a pulpit. To be sure, the gospel and all its implications ought to always be in our lips to encourage, as we have seen, have, as we've been in our homes and with the body and all those whom God brings to us. We want to be always pointing one another to the cross, to Christ. And this ministry happens over lunch, over a text. Maybe it's at mom's group. All of life is ministry, and so we want to be equipped to about, to be about the Lord's work. You all have Scott's, um, that sample prayer, right, in your notebooks? Still, Chris, do you still? Yeah. So if you haven't pulled that out in a while, do that. It is a really great encouragement and a really great way to set our hearts in that direction. Why are we here before your word? Lord, who are you? How is this even um, uh, possible? We come because of your sacrifice on the cross. But Today, we're going to talk specifically what God's Word has to say about the danger of a prideful heart. And we're going to talk about the great news of the Gospel. See, we can't talk about one without the other. We're going to talk about sin, and it's not very popular these days to talk about. But without talking about our sin, how is the Gospel good news to our heart? God's Word talks about it and what He has done and what he wants us to do, and so we must talk about our sin. God hates sin. And because we love God, we will look at this heart of pride and eradicate it, set out to eradicate it from our lives. For the believer, as you know, just to remind you that we are in a mixed condition. Christ paid the penalty of sin so that the power of sin was broken, but the presence of sin remains in our hearts. And today we're going to talk about that uh, process of sanctification, of fighting the sin of pride. God chooses to use sinful people to fulfill his good purposes. And for that this morning, I'm very grateful. I've had the opportunity to examine my heart in the last weeks as I've been preparing. And I, again, recognize areas of pride. And it's easy for me to wallow in my failures. But I've also had to remind myself and shepherd this heart of mine that I'm not condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. So I pray and I ask God to help me fight harder for obedience by his grace. And I know that's your heart as well. So we press on together. Most likely there's gonna be a new area or an old area that God brings to light again because um, of sin and pride in your heart because Uh, There's a residue in each of us. It's the root of all of our sin. But there is hope and we do not lose heart. He will finish the work he has begun in us. That is an amazing and encouraging promise. And it brings glory to him as we fight against our sin. See, he could have saved us and cleaned us up right away. He could have made us sinless at that point. But it brings him great glory as we battle this sin. And so I'm here this morning, just one beggar pointing another beggar to the bread. And so I want to start by asking, do you see yourself as a prideful person? When you hear the word pride or arrogant, you might be tempted to think of someone else. Pride is a lot easier to identify in others than it is in ourselves, isn't it? And seriously, danger, as seriously dangerous as sin is, it is equally hard to identify in ourselves. i make sure that's going. <laughs> the thing is, others can see more clearly uh, those things that we might not recognize in our own selves, or maybe we're unwilling to see or to address. Remember, our hearts are prone to deceive and prone to being deceived. And by God's grace, we want to continue to grow in being able to identify these areas of pride, to see pride as God sees it, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and become more conformed to his image through sanctification. Pride is something that we all struggle with, but we must guard to even being okay with thinking that, thinking, yeah, I struggle with pride, but so does everyone else we begin then to elevate our sin, becoming proud that we see our sin, but maybe not battling to eradicate it from our lives. We want to learn to see God, to see sin as God sees it, and we do that by looking in his word. And we're going to look at the great cost that was paid, and it should break our hearts, and that we should be humbled and broken and contrite over our sin, because we see that ultimately... Our sin is against a holy God, this God who we say we love, that we do love. And we want to be humbled by that fact, that we're no longer a slave to pride. And now I have the power to obey. I didn't want to, or I didn't have the power to obey, but he has made me new. He has made you new. So in order to help us to see and understand how pride displays itself, and to help identify pride in our own hearts just in this next couple of minutes ask the lord to show you your sin and that's a gift from him that you're able to see it that you might humble your hearts and recognize and see your sin it's his gift to reveal that to us we do this every year um sharing the 41 evidences of pride by nancy Moss, who's now married um and I think you have that today as a handout. I'm going to read a few of those and just listen as I go. And again, humbly ask the Lord to, to show you your sin. Are you quick to find fault with others? Do you have a sharp, critical tongue? Do you frequently correct or criticize your husband or others in positions of leadership? Are you driven to receive approval or praise or acceptance from others? Do you generally think your way is the right way, the only way, or the best way? Do you have a sensitive spirit, meaning are you easily offended? Do you get your feelings hurt easily? Are you guilty of pretense, trying to leave a better impression of who you are than who you really are? Do you have a hard time admitting when you are wrong? Do you have a hard time confessing your sin to God or to others? Do you become defensive when you are criticized or corrected? Are you a perfectionist? Are you impatient with those who are not? Do you tend to be controlling of your circumstances or of others? Does anyone around you feel like they can never measure up to your expectations? Do you often complain about the weather, about your health, your circumstances, your job, your church? Are you more concerned about your problems, your needs or burdens, than about others? Do you worry about what others think, to be concerned about your reputation or your family's reputation? Do you neglect to express gratitude for the little things to God or to others? Do you neglect prayer and intake of God's word? And the list goes on. Those are hard questions, aren't they? Do you find those convicting? I think in some way I could answer yes to every one of those, some varying degrees. So have you seen how pride can show itself in our hearts? One author said, Pride is self-obsession. Pride is preoccupation with myself. It's a lie about reality. It says I'm worth thinking about all the time. It's an orientation that wrongly assumes that everything resolves around me. Pride must be killed, but it's hard to spot and it's even harder to kill. It's a slippery sin. J. Edwards said, Pride is the most hidden secret and deceitful of all sins. Pride. It's a high opinion of one's own dignity, importance, merit, whether cherished in the mind or displayed in conduct. Well, let's open God's word and see what God says about pride in the heart. And on your outline, the first section is the danger to which pride exposes the heart. And we're going to start our study today in Deuteronomy 17. Moses is giving instruction to Israel Regarding a king that they will have someday. And starting in verse 18 Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Verse 19 It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. Why? That he might learn to fear the Lord his God. And how? By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the left or to the right, or to the right or to the left, as yours might say, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So the king is to write a copy of the law for himself in the presence of the priests. It's to be always in his presence, and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he will learn to fear the Lord through obedience. He's to keep God's word with him and read it in order to prevent him from lifting up his heart above others in arrogance and pride, to prevent the king from thinking that he was better than all of the rest. He needs God's word close to his heart, So that he doesn't exempt himself from the standard that everyone else has to live by. He must live by that same standard. And the king of Israel was to be on the same level as everybody else. And it was God's law. It was God's word. God's revelation of himself was to do the leveling. And the great leveler for all of us is God's word. So as we go through, we're going to have some how about me questions to help us search our own hearts and to not think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this lesson. Guard against that kind of thinking this morning. Well, how about me? Do I realize that? Do I realize that I will exalt myself without a steady diet of God's word? I, do I realize that I will start thinking that somebody else needs God's word more than I do and exempt myself? Just like the king, we need to be continually to go be exposed to God's word at the heart level. To prevent us from lifting up our hearts above others in pride. To prevent us from thinking that we somehow are above others. We want to be careful. We, do, we don't want to quickly point our finger at those who are not as good as we are or those who are caught in great sin. We need. We have a need. It's a vital need. To be continually, worshipfully, prayerfully exposed to God's word at the heart level. It's what we talk about every week. To prevent us from elevating ourselves above others in pride. To seek a humble attitude through time with him. And to have a but for the grace of God, there go I attitude. Rather than feeling superior to those who practice in, but to feel deeply grateful that God, by his grace, has either kept us from sin or rescued us from sin. And back to the outline, we're going to turn to Proverbs sixteen five. Solomon says of his son <clears throat> about pride in his son. Everyone who is arrogant of heart is an abomination. Or the Holman Christian Standard Bible says detestable. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates it. Be assured he will not go unpunished. That's God's response to pride. It must be punished. And it was the Son of God. He was punished for our sin. Every sin. And the sin of pride and arrogance at the cross. God didn't change the way he felt about it. Christ willingly became my sin. That my arrogance was to God. And for you. I'm going to read from um, one of my favorites, a gospel primer. On humility according to scripture god deliberately designed the gospel in such a way so as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever this is actually a wonderful mercy from god for pride is at the root of all my sin pride produced the first sin in the garden and pride also always precedes every sinful stumbling in my life therefore if i'm to experience deliverance from sin i must be delivered from the pride that produces it Thankfully, the gospel is engineered to accomplish this deliverance. Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than a daily reminder regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Also, the gracious love of God lavished on me because of Christ's death is always humbling to remember, especially when viewed against the backdrop of the hell I deserve. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel, and the more pride is mortified within me, the less frequent are my moments of sinful contention with God and with others. Conversely, humility grows lushly in the atmosphere of the gospel. And the more humility flourishes within me, the more I experience God's grace along with the strengthening His grace provides. Additionally, such humility intensifies my passion for God and causes my heart increasingly to thrill whenever He is praised. I must preach that truth, the truth of the gospel to my heart, and see my sin clearly in light of the price that was paid and what God accomplished for me on my behalf how about you how about me do i regularly preach the gospel realities to my heart and let them turn me away from that arrogance to which Christ died and suffered suffered and then died sorry hosea 13:4 on your outline hosea is a prophet and clear statement from God about the way he saw himself with Israel. It's the time of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And God is looking back. I'm going to start in verse yeah, verse 4. Uh, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. And you were not to know any God except me. For there is no Savior beside me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of droughts. And you'll see that he shifts from talking to them. He shifts and starts talking about them. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. And being satisfied, their hearts became proud. Therefore, they forgot me. We see here how dangerous a prideful heart can be. A prideful heart can be tempted to forget God. We see here that the root of forgetting God is pride. Their hearts became proud, therefore they forgot him. That's what the there is there for. There is such a danger when we're satisfied and we're comfortable having God's provisions, we're very blessed, and that's a time that our hearts would be tempted to forget God. And like I said, none of us are exempt from that temptation. Never a day that we don't have to watch over it, watch over our hearts. It's easy to remember to cry out to God when things are hard. When relationships are hard or financial problems or health, those trials help us to see our need for God. But we are always in need of God. So what can we do to be just as intentional about seeking the Lord when we're satisfied and when we're comfortable? Again, it's the purpose of your wellspring meeting together to remind one another over and over and over again we must bring our hearts before God to meet with the God of the Word, to acknowledge our constant, ongoing need for Him. In Hosea and in Deuteronomy 8, we saw one way pride might show itself <coughs> in our lives. When things are going okay, we're prone to forget God. Well, how else might we forget God? When we find ourselves using the excuse of busyness, for not meeting with God in His Word, for not praying, and have you ever thought about that as pride? We might not see it that way, but because that's the way pride is. It's tricky. It's it's um, deceiving, and uh, it has a lot of faces. There are seasons of challenge and of obstacles, to be sure. You all have busy, full lives. Busyness is not necessarily sinful. It might be the season that you are in right now. But if you're using that busyness as an excuse for not meeting with God in His Word, for not praying or not acknowledging our dependence on Him, when we don't make a relationship with Him and time with Him in His Word a priority, then what we're really saying is, God, I know better than you what my heart needs today. I don't need to meet with you. I have it under control what pride and what arrogance shows. Because we don't always see the root and the faces of pride and how there's depths and layers to it, it's just helpful to identify the real reason and condition of our hearts and root it out. When we consistently neglect to prioritize time with him and his word and time with him in prayer, to see how that can lead to forgetting God, One day leads to two days, and three days, and maybe it's been a week or more, or you go about your day without a thought. I know better, God, what my heart needs. How about me? Do I see how dangerous a prideful heart is because it leads to divine forgetfulness? When I'm tempted to not meet with him because, you know, things are going okay, I'm blessed, and, well, I'm busy and I begin to make choices without a concern for my heart and how it will impact my heart, I have to remind my heart what it needs most. We need to remind one another what our heart needs most. It's vitally necessary for my heart to meet with him and to draw near to him more than anything else I do. And as we look at the different faces of pride, it's to help us to get a better understanding of how pride might be the root, and that's going to help us understand how to battle it. So we're going to move to 2 Chronicles 26, and I'm going to kind of jump through there from uh, 1 to to 18, but I'm going to hit a couple of different verses there. In verse 1, and all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king. And down to to, uh, verse 4, and he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. King Uzziah did right in the sight of the Lord. And it says he continued to seek God. As long as he did, God prospered him. And then jump down to verse six um, through fifteen. I'm sorry, describes all the kinds of victories and achievement, and tells us why in verse seven God helped him. And then jumping down to verse 15, Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped by God who helped him until he was strong. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud. It's the same danger we saw in Deuteronomy 8 and in Hosea. He was successful and strong, and he took credit for his success. Success can be very dangerous to our hearts if we're not careful to be guarding against it it might be the very thing you pursue this success and we can let that compete with the affections of god we see here the danger in verse 16 when he became strong his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the lord his god for he entered the temple of the lord to burn incense at the altar of the lord how is entering the temple to burn incense a corrupt act How is that being unfaithful to the Lord, you might ask? Well, verse 17. Then Azariah the priest entered after him, and with 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful and will have no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah was unfaithful to the Lord, for he overstepped the boundaries of authority that God had given him. The Lord had marvelously helped him, for sure. He granted him success and he granted him victories. But service in the Lord, and um, service in the temple was reserved for priests, the descendants of Aaron. Even though it was he was the king, it was not his position to take. Burning incense was not a bad thing. It was a good thing, but Uzziah wasn't qualified to do it. It wasn't. His role. How about you, and how about me? Are we ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given to us? Ever tempted to work around the roles God has given you in your marriage, in your parents, your boss? Now maybe Uzziah thought he was entitled. After all, he was the king but it was not his position. He was not entitled. Do I ever do that? Am I ever tempted to grasp authority that hasn't been given or have that sense of entitlement? It's so tempting to have an attitude of entitlement, isn't it? Our culture screams entitlement. Women's rights are all over. And if our hearts are not in full contact with God's word, we begin to believe the lies the world tells us. Like, I'm entitled to something for me. I have the right to me time. I'm entitled to respect or for my children. I'm entitled to appreciation or comfort. We deserve a break today. We deserve time alone. We deserve happiness and health. We deserve retirement. Whatever it is we think we deserve. And what do we all really deserve? We deserve hell eternity separated from God. So I must go back to think about my identity in Christ. I must go back thinking about the gospel and repent of this sense of entitlement. When we think what we want is more important than what God has for us, that's pride. Now desire may not be a sinful desire, this desire you to have it might be a godly desire, but when I demand that, when I demand what a desire and sin to get it, think I'm thinking I'm entitled, it's important to stop and realize what's going on in my heart and to begin the battle again. how I react, pay attention and and just watch how does how does my heart react? When I'm not treated in the way I feel I need to be treated or don't get what I think I'm entitled to. It's very telling. Maybe your kids are not obeying or your husband's not living up to what you want. Maybe someone's rude or you get caught off on the freeway or you don't get the attention you think you deserve. It's good to practice paying attention and to see my reactions, to see my responses. And it helps me to root out pride. Now, a sense of entitlement can take on many different forms. Do you see the layers going on here? Another form might be laziness, because I think I'm entitled to do what I want to do with my time. What might laziness look like in our lives? It might look like overindulgence in sleep, probably not for you young mamas, entertainment, TV, movies, games, computer time, reading blogs or being on FaceTime or... Instagram or Pinterest. And none of these are bad in themselves. In fact, they can be quite helpful. But laziness really is putting anything ahead of the responsibility that God's given. It's selfish gain. And hear me, it is not bad. Those things in themselves are not bad, but if we're neglecting the things that God's given us to do, they can be sinful. And what are some of the things that God's given us to do, just a few? Spending time with him, being a helpmate to your husband, caring for your children, caring for your homes, your roommates, serving one another, serving in the body of Christ, discipline or training your children, reaching out to the lost. Anytime we are putting ourselves first, self-exaltation and self-promotion, which is what the world encourages to do, it's pride. And we want to call it and see it the way that God calls it and sees it. Pride in the heart can lead to a sense of entitlement, which may lead to overstepping authority or laziness or self-exaltation. And sin has partners. It always travels with a partner, Right? So again, it's helpful to train ourselves to, to identify these things. Asking others, maybe, help me to see the things that I don't see. Or help me in these things that I'm unwilling to see. And that is just the opposite, isn't it? That's very humbling to go to someone and ask that kind of question. Now we're going to look at this in the New Testament, in James 3, verse 13. James 3, 13. Now, he's just finished up the second chapter, and James has been dealing with those in the body who are drawing party lines and showing preferential treatment, especially for the rich. They dishonored the poor. And he gives instructions and warnings, and then in verse 13 verse, through verse 16, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior, his Show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, watch out. <laughs> Do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there, dis- there is disorder and every evil thing. So it says if we have bitter jealousy in our hearts, if we have selfish ambition, it positions us to be arrogant, to be prideful. We seek the Lord for wisdom and guard our hearts at all cost. Again, this passage in James helps us to see how one sin easily leads to another, another kind. But the good news, the opposite of that is as we fight sin strategically, by his grace we might be fighting other sins. And it's like a domino effect. And we might kill other sins along with that one. So when we see jealousy or selfish ambition, what's the root? As in all of our sin, it's pride. So far, we've seen the faces of pride by forgetting God, sense of entitlement, overstepping our boundaries, laziness, bitterness, jealousy, selfish ambition. And if we go after the root, we see and repent of pride. We're going to be actually doing battle with other sins. And we train ourselves and even ask others to help to make those connections, to see our hearts. You see, we need one another to help us to do that. So as if we needed more, let's go on to Second Chronicles and see more faces of pride. In 2 Chronicles um, 32, verse 24, In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. And the NIV says, did not respond to the kindness God showed him. He didn't respond to kindness God showed him because he wasn't thankful. His heart was proud. There's another face of pride. So how might we fall in to fail to respond to God's kindness? Let's turn to Romans uh, two 4. You're probably familiar with this as well. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. Do you hate admitting your sin? Or are you quick to repent when you've sinned? Are you quick to seek forgiveness when you've sinned against someone else? Or your sin has affected someone else in, an, in some way? Or do you ignore it? Thinking everybody should just move on and forget it. It wasn't that big of a deal. To avoid uncomfortable situations, do you not adjust your sin? That is not repentance as God describes it. That's a failure to respond to God's kindness and evidence of a prideful heart. True repentance is displayed in, it, if you want to look at this later, 2 Corinthians 7. Another way we might respond to God's kindness by complaining or being discontent. This too is a failure to respond to God's kindness. A failure to recognize God's kindness to us in all circumstances. A complaining attitude is so easy to fall into. You might complain about your appearance or how how, how hard you work or how tired you are. About unbelieving family members that make life difficult or difficulties with people you live with or work with. Maybe you complain about financial problems. Or self-pity because we think our lives should just be different. That somehow life should just be different. Complaining in any form of reflects a discontented heart. And how quickly and easily we can fall into this. It's just too hot. Or it's just too cold. Because on a heart level, what we really believe is that we deserve something better. Maybe not what we really believe, but we're really thinking at the moment. It's something different than what we have right now. When we don't really believe that, whatever the circumstances might be, and believing that we should have something different, it's a failure to respond to God's kindness. He's given us exactly what we need, what is best for us. It's God's good for me. It's God's best for me. And let me remind you that if he thought we needed something different, he would be the first one to do that for us. And the Greener Grass Conspiracy is a great resource. If you're struggling with that, maybe it would help your heart to think rightly in that direction. Greener Grass Conspiracy, I think we have it out there. So 2 Chronicles 32 says that evidence of pride in my heart is not responding to God's kindness. And look at the consequences of that pride at the end of verse 25. Therefore, wrath came on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. See, others may experience the consequences of my sin. Do you realize the impact our sin and pride will have on others? Consequences run deep and wide many times. But look at verse 26, and this is so encouraging to me. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart. Who did it? Hezekiah did it. So you and I humble our hearts. It goes on in both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. Isn't that encouraging? That God was willing to turn back his wrath in the face of repentance. And the hope we have as believers who live after the cross is that Christ bore God's righteous wrath against our sin. He gives us a new heart so that we can repent of sin, that we can humble our hearts because we have this new identity in Christ. How about me? How about you? How might I fail to respond to God's kindness? Do I recognize the impact of my pride and what it has on others? How might others experience consequences for my sin? We've seen many faces of pride, tempting us to forget God, oftentimes through uh, successes and blessings. We forget God by not seeing within our authority and sense of entitlement and being lazy, not responding to God's kindness or repenting of sin, complaining or discontent and being bitter jealous, having selfish ambition, and the list goes on and on. So when pride, exposes, pride is exposed in our hearts, what should we do? <clears throat> Deal with that pride when it's exposed, of course, by God's grace in the gospel. He has equipped us. These are the things we must bring to the cross. Believer, if that sin is not there, it's, it's not that sin is not there, I'm sorry. But it's God's kindness that he reveals it to us, right? Ask God to show me where pride exists. Show me where I am being arrogant. And God will give us eyes to see he is a faithful God. We confess and we repent and we turn away. We seek forgiveness from those we've sinned against. <clears throat> These are the things which Christ died for. We need to ask him, because it's easy for us to see pride in others but not in ourselves and so we ask the lord who will be faithful to show us <clears throat> what do we do when we see others being arrogant <clears throat> we certainly we certainly should see it as an opportunity to ask the lord god make me nearsighted to my sin before i see others help me see this big log in my own eye, as Matthew 7, and repent, that I might come along beside my sister and help her with her speck. So we humble ourselves and we repent of pride. Let's take a look and see what God's word said about humility, which is the opposite of pride. Sorry, I don't know where this came from. First Peter 5, five <clears throat> going And have you turned there? I'm going to read what William Law says about humility. Humility is nothing else but a right judgment of ourselves. And A. W. Tozer says, "The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority." He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. He knows well what the world will never see him. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. He's not concerned with others' opinions. He's concerned only with God's opinion of him. So 1 Peter 5, 5-7 you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another for god is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble do you see he says all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another humility is something we must live out in our relationships Our hearts are exposed when we're in relationship with one another, right? Sinners living with sinners. And we're in a better position to see where our hearts need to be humbled. You know, like when you're criticized, for example, or you're rebuked or admonished. It's so easy to feel um, hurt or misunderstood and maybe defensive, but that's pride. And we want to begin to recognize this. As if I'm feeling, it's like Like feeling better about myself is more important than areas I need to grow. So we need one another and those that you live with. The passage continues, therefore humble yourselves where? Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And here he shows us how to to humble ourselves. Casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Now wait, he calls us to humble ourselves by accepting the care he has for us. It's actually pride to reject his care. C.J. Mahaney says about this verse in his book, Humility, Where there's worry, where there's anxiousness, pride is at the root. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be Self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. I'm worried that God's going to get it wrong. Wow. It's a form of forgetting God. So the solution to the humble heart, to humbling ourselves, is where? Under the mighty hand of God. So when we need to humble ourselves before others, when we need to confess sin, or when we're criticized or rebuked, We can look beyond that person to our mighty God who cares and who loves us. He is the one that we are actually humbling ourselves to. He is the one who is at work for our good and for his glory. We can trust him in that. Humility is having an accurate view of ourselves, yes, but an accurate view of our mighty Savior. And seeing others... As instruments that God is using to purify us. These are some great truths and great ways to um, train our hearts and our minds. The heart of humility is remembering the gospel and fleeing to Christ, admitting how prideful we are, and thanking God and praising Him for what He has done for us. At the cross, God poured out His wrath against my pride, He set us free. We are no longer slaves to pride. We ought to live that way that's what makes repentance a joy remembering that jesus is our only hope and he is our more than sufficient abundant hope for cultivating a heart of humility and that being near him being right with christ is better than anything my prideful heart desires it's better than anything this prideful attitude will ever offer. We're going to look at Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Not only will a humble heart draw us near to our Savior, it will also draw us near to one another, right? I'm sure you've seen that displayed in your own life. Watch out how Paul starts out with who we are, our gospel identity, in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy, and beloved. He starts with our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. We are chosen of God, holy, and we are beloved. Now because of that, he goes on, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The command to be humble is not to just make ourselves look better. That's obviously pride. But it's grounded in our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And if we're to wage war with pride and cultivate humility, we must feed our hearts with a steady diet of God's word, of the gospel. Humility grows out of a heart that cherishes Jesus Christ. He is our greatest treasure. And the truth and realities of our identity and what he accomplished at the cross, I must remind my heart again who I once was, what Christ has done on my behalf, and who Christ has made me and is continuing to do. The second thing we don't want to miss is that humility serves a greater purpose. Humility is essential for building unity and love between believers. And that displays what he's done in us. That's the work of the gospel. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. We are not his own. we are His slaves, and he is a kind master. and he's entrusted us with the greatest treasure. the treasure of Christ's finished Christ, I'm sorry, finished work on the cross to pay for sin and pride, so that we walk in newness of life. It's the gospel realities we must preach to ourselves, and we can walk in humility. We can walk in humility. And we can live with one another in such a way that the world says, Wow, look how they love and care for one another. How do they do that? That is just not normal. They're serving one another and they're doing it joyfully. That kind of living adorns the gospel. It puts Christ on display. It declares the power of the gospel to make us what we could never be apart from Christ, right? And finally, we're going to look at Philippians 2, 1 through 8. It's a very familiar passage, so we want to be careful to listen and not miss what he wants to tell us this morning again. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's what we're called to be, not driven to please ourselves, but pursuing love and pursuing unity with the body of Christ. It's similar to Colossians 3 that we read, there's an appeal to unity and love. And what does that require? What does that require? But do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look merely at your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. One of the first sermons that we came when we came to Grace Bible uh, made such an impact because Scott, uh, as he was teaching, used the description of us as self-graspers self-graspers. We want what we want for our own benefit. But Jesus didn't grasp. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He is our example, and we fight this pride because we love him, because he is our example. We fight for pride in our hearts. Jesus took the form of a slave, and I've been reading um, the book Slave by John MacArthur and just understanding all that that all that that means, a slave and being in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, a slave had no thought of his own. He had no will of his own, no desire. He quickly obeyed whatever the master asked. And that's how we received our enabling grace, because Christ died for us. He humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death. So we have the grace to turn from pride in all its many, many faces to humility and to love because he gave himself. He took away the penalty of our selfish ambition and sin to break the power of sin over us and to give new life in a love relationship with him. It's not a I know about him, but I know him and his people, right? It's a love with one another. That is the power of the gospel. So to battle pride, we need to always be on the lookout for its many faces. And the list is endless. We talk about battling sin, fighting sin in our lives. Well, what does that really look like? And I would love a whole lesson on that. Recognizing how my heart responds to circumstances and to people and seeing sin. It might be praying before I even get out of bed, before my feet hit the floor. Praying, Lord, I know that I am selfish. I know I'm a self-grasper. Often my eye is on my own comfort, my own desires. I'm prone to anger. I confess that in these moments with you, Lord, and my love for myself in those moments, my love for myself is greater than my love for you being displayed. And what I've really done is trampled on your gift of salvation, your gift of grace to me. Help me today to see my sin and to turn from it to turn from the temptation to be angry or self-grasping and see my sin as against you, the Almighty God. I'm dependent upon you for all things. So praying before we even start our day. Humility is fundamentally a form of self-forgetfulness as opposed to pride's fixation. When you think about yourself less, you are free to think about Christ more. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The comfortable moments when I pat myself on the back for how well I'm doing are the moments that should alarm me the most. I need to reach for the glasses of Christ-like humility, remembering that nothing good dwells in my flesh, and search my heart for secret sins, secret prides. We see the cross rightly through the miracle of conversion, and seeing the cross rightly helps me to battle my sin. Seeing the cross rightly means that we see ourselves rightly as well. Pride is, de- de- I'm going to finish with this. Pride is defeated decisively at conversion, progressively in sanctification, and totally at glorification, where we experience everlasting worship of God. I wanted to finish with gospel, the, um, the gospel from her. Please read that this afternoon. It will encourage your heart, or sometime this week as you're doing your study. Um, so let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace, for your enabling grace. Lord, we thank you for um, taking our punishment on the cross for every sin against you. That we are new creatures in you, new creatures in Christ, able now to choose you, to follow after you, to make right choices, the things that are best for our hearts. Lord, I thank you for your grace, and may we walk in the way um, that you have called us. Walk in the truths that we have before us. May you change us from the inside out, and may you be glorified as we display the gospel to one another in our homes, in our body, to those that we come in contact with. Lord, I thank you for all that you have done in us and through us. Thank you, Lord, for giving yourself at the cross. May we walk rightly before you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.